yes, that deserves a round of applause. That's awesome. I, I love that. And I love uh, John's challenge for us this fall, that praying the Lord include me and then also sharing those. The thing I love, I think, the most about Ray's video is he says, I didn't really think like, feel like it was that big of a deal, right? And to me, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's the thing. Most of the time when God calls us, like, has this Lord include me moment, sometimes it is for sure, but most of the time, it doesn't actually seem like a big deal to us. It's like, oh, yeah, it's more about, am I being aware of those situations that God's actually setting right before me? And so I love that part of it because that's the kind of thing that, it might not have been a big deal to Ray, but I guarantee you it was a big deal to that lady. It was a big deal to that family. And uh, that's the kind of people that we're called to be is, hey, just step into those places. Be aware because something that might just seem like this simple little thing to you might be something that really changes or impacts somebody's life forever. And so awesome. I love it. Great job, Ray. Uh, big Daddy Ray, proud of you. That was awesome. Um, so we are jumping back into the book of Hebrews this morning, and I hope that you're excited. Yes, it's going to be so good. Um, John's done a fantastic job of jump-starting us in the first couple of chapters in Hebrews. Uh, it has been great. Uh, I love the book of Hebrews, and I'll tell you one little bit why. The last like 15, 16 years or so, um, I've really invested in and kind of dived into this kind of uh, understanding the Hebrew background and the uh, cultural background of the scriptures. And uh, I, I just love it. And so like I was actually joking with one of my sons the other day. We were in, in my little office area and looking at, I have more books on that in my library that I do counseling, which I have a degree in and a license in, which is kind of, I don't know if that's scary from the counseling side or good on the, I don't know. But uh, I just love it. And the book of Hebrews is actually one of those that we get to see so much of that really clearly, really kind of straight in your face, right in your face. And so I love it. And I love the book. He was one of my favorite ones. Uh, John's kind of kicked us off looking at chapters one and two of Hebrews. As he said, we don't know who the author is, he or she. And if you hear that and go, well, go back chapter one, uh, watch that. He does a great job of just tell, talking about that and some different ideas but we know the beauty of the message that we find in the book of Hebrews. And so it starts off that Jesus is better than the angels, right? And John did a great job laying that out. What were they talking about? We don't necessarily think about it that way. Maybe for us, it's more of like Jesus is better than spirituality, you know, just kind of general spirituality. Um, and then also last week, Jesus is better than any distractions that might come our way. And I don't know about you, but that was super applicable for me because what we live, I live in a world full of distractions. So it really challenged me. So today we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 3. Open that up. You can open up your Bible. We also have the Bible app, that Version Bible app that you can click on, click on locations, find Riverside, and boom, all of the scripture and sermon notes and stuff like that will be on there if you want to follow along that way. So let's jump in. There's so much good stuff to get to. Let's get to it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1, reads, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in a heavenly calling. And we have to actually take a quick little time out. Uh, don't worry, like we're actually going to get through some stuff. I don't know, that might scare you if we already stopped that soon. But, uh, Therefore, okay, I'm going to show you this morning, there's three little hermeneutical tools that are in 
uh, this little passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning. And that word hermeneutical basically just means studying scriptures, the art of studying the scriptures. And there's three little tools. And one of them is that therefore. So there's literary tools, that literary cues that we need to be aware of. So therefore is kind of, is one of those things that like if you see it, you've got to stop and you have to go backwards to see what it's there for is the way that a lot of people say it because you can't really fully understand what's about to be said without going back to understand where it's coming from, okay? So it's kind of like last week, uh, the Dallas Cowboys game. I don't know if you're a football fan. I don't know if you're even watching football. I didn't watch it. But what I did see at the end was a score that was 40 to 39. I thought, oh, wow, man, what a wild shootout kind of a game, right? Well, I didn't know any of the background that the Cowboys were actually down 20 to nothing at the beginning of the game, 29 to 10 at halftime, and then made this kind of amazing comeback, won the get right, this whole story that was in it. I just knew 40 to 39. So it was, for me, it was like, it's a therefore. There was a story that went along with it that actually explained what that meant. Okay, and that's what a therefore kind of is. Okay, it's a go back, don't pass go. Go back and see what's going on. So in chapter two, the second half of chapter two, um, it's really all about Jesus being better than any other spirituality because he was the one that was willing to sacrificially give his life and suffer uh, for us. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for him, for, from whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. So that's the platform that this is about to build off of in chapter 3. That, that's kind of that summary verse in that whole uh, chapter 2, second half deal. That Jesus was made perfect in his suffering, which I don't know about you, is not normally what I would probably put on the list, right? There's a lot of other things. That he received glory and honor because of his suffering. And therefore, because he is the God who is willing to give himself completely to us, for us. Therefore, now we can jump into Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in a heavenly calling, take note of Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess, who is faithful to the one who appointed him, as Moses was also in God's house. So a couple quick little things. Clearly, we don't know who the author is, but clearly the author cares about his audience, cares about them deeply. And, and I point this out because, honestly, that's how, I mean, I know, and I know John well enough, to, and I know he feels the same way. When we have the opportunity to share with you some of the truths from the scriptures, this is my, this is my perspective. Oh, set apart holy brothers and sisters, partners in the kingdom this is such a joy to get to look at this, to share this, to share what God's been pointing out to me with you. So don't, you know, don't miss it. John talked about, don't get distracted. Don't fade. Make Jesus the focus. And it says the same thing. Remember, take note, take note. And so he, th there's clearly a picture of like love and care of whoever the author is for the audience. This is important. I care about you so much. Don't miss what's coming. And so this whole uh, argument, story, kind of analogy that the author is about to give is powerful from the perspective of you can't 
miss it. And part of the reason why is because it's going to deal with a question. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? It's a question that's been asked all throughout history, all throughout the scriptures, Older Testament, New Testament. They're always talking about who is, well, if he was a prophet, well, if he's a good, hey, good teacher, right? All these kind of things. And Jesus is always pushing back against this identity that other people would give him to show you, to show us the reality of who he really is. And so it's kind of like, I noted when I was looking, uh, studying, I came across just randomly, not randomly, I think Spirit pointed out, a survey that just happened, 2020 State of Theology Survey. Um, and you can find this online. In fact, I think on the Bible app, we actually link the, uh, the survey stuff so you can go back and know that I didn't just make up uh, what's the old saying, like 70% of all statistics on the stage are made up on the spot or something like that. I didn't do that. So, um, but here's a little study of, or some of the pieces from that study. These are questions asked by people claiming to be evangelical Christians. 30% agree Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. 56 believe the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. So the Holy Spirit is just kind of like, the force, like the good side that's out there pushing back against the darkness, right? But not actually the spirit of God that resides with us. 18%, so one out of every five almost, agrees that the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. Did you catch that one? Man. 65% believe Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God which would mean he wasn't actually God. He was created, right, by God. Um, and so these are some, fun, I mean, mind-blowing statistics. These are people who are sitting in seats just like us this morning. And I'm just going, wow, we're still asking the same question. Who is this Jesus? Who is this God? And so the author from Hebrews, inspired by God, is about to lay out a really cool uh, example and story about who Jesus is by comparing Jesus to Moses, okay? This is what we're about to see. Now, here's what you have to know. This is a book, the book of Hebrews, right? So who was it written to? Hebrews, right? Jewish people. Who is Moses to the Hebrews? Pretty big deal. Like, Moses is a big deal, okay? In fact, they would say it's been said about Moses in the Jewish tradition that he's the greatest man, the greatest prophet to have ever lived. Okay? I'm pretty sure the author who was inspired by God knew this perspective when they were writing this. Okay? Um, it says that he saw all that all the other prophets combined ever saw and more. So this is Moses. Right? And the author's about to come after this whole idea and concept of Moses and Jesus. In verse 3, it says, For he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house deserves greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are of his house if in fact we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope that we take 
pride in. So let me show you another quick, as we jump into unpacking this, what does all this mean? This whole conversation is built around a literary, another hermeneutical principle, a literary cue of repetition. If you notice, house is mentioned in these four verses seven times, okay? If you see words repeated a bunch, that's like a, hey, pay attention. And actually the way to think about it is, have you ever had an egg hunt before, you know, with, kid, with your kids? And you've got that kid, especially like when they're little, it seems like, and like, you know, if you do it the way we do it so that it's fair and nobody's complaining and crying afterwards and you count out like everybody's eggs and they all have the same amount and they're different colors, right? And then there's that kid that has like three left. Everybody else is done and you're gone, right? And so you just start saying things like, hey, have you seen that tree over there lately? Isn't it pretty right now? It's really, you know, blossom that tree that's right over there by the well house. It's so beautiful, right now. It's just all green. I love going under that tree, and I could just stand there in the shade when it's really, right? And you just keep saying that, and then eventually, oh, oh look, here's all my, right? That whole deal that happens. Well, this is kind of what the author is doing. This is a pretty common deal from a Jewish author of like, hey, I'm going to put these little clues here so that you dig for and go find that treasure, right? That's there. And so it's a play on, the whole thing is a play on the word house. House in this passage means a bunch of different things. It means the tabernacle. It means a building. It means the people. It means a family lineage. lineage, And it means us. And so the author kind of works through this whole process of explaining what this looks like. And he makes this comparison, or she makes this comparison, between Moses and Jesus. So here's what you got to know. Here's Jesus, or here's Moses. If you're not familiar with Moses, if you are, here's Moses. This is what you have to understand to kind of put this thing together and see what, what God's saying. Moses, long, long time ago, baby, born, slavery, not supposed to live, going to be put to death, right? Sent down the river, and ends up becoming a baby in Pharaoh's house, adopted into Pharaoh, the king, the oppressive king's family. Grows up, learns all these kind of things, starts to realize his true identity as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, and kind of starts wrestling with that difficulty, ends up getting in a fight trying to protect some Hebrew guy, and ends up killing somebody, killing the Egyptian. So he flees, he's afraid for his life, takes off, he goes and is a shepherd out in the desert for years and years and years, eventually comes to meet God, has an interaction with God, okay? An experience, the whole burning bush deal, talks to him directly. God says, Moses, go do this, right, that whole deal. And Moses goes, I'm scared. And okay, go get your brother, he'll help you. And then they go, they go back to Egypt, all the plagues, which one really cool thing, every single plague is a picture of how God was more powerful than the Egyptian gods. Every single one of them is a direct deal of God saying, nope, I'm the real God. Nope, I'm the real God. Nope, I'm the real God. Okay, so finally, Pharaoh gives up. Get out of here. Go. They liberate the people. They're not slaves anymore. They go. They cross the Red Sea. What? All that whole deal. Come to the mountain of God where they're to meet with God. 
and hear from God. They do. They hear God's audible voice. God gives them these instructions, kind of like a, a calling them to be his people, like a marriage ceremony, telling them you're going to be now these holy, which means set apart. You're a different, going to be a different kind of people. And then he says, hey, come up. I want to talk to you. Get everybody cleaned and dressed up for uh, the wedding. Come up. And the people go, hey, Moses, uh, can you just go talk to God for us? Because we're a little scared of him. Like, he, you know, I don't know. He did all this stuff and he might get upset with us like he did with Pharaoh and then kill us. So Moses goes, okay, whatever. God says, that's fine. Come over here. Moses and God have this convert, this interaction, this relationship where God and Moses speak, or God speaks to Moses directly. God gives them all the instructions for the people to learn how to live as not a people that are in slavery in Egypt, but a freed, set-apart people. Gives them all this instruction. Gives them this instruction to set up a tabernacle, a house for God, is what we say, which the, the truth, though, is the house isn't really for God. It's for, it's for us. It was for the people, right? God didn't need a house to live in, but they needed a place where they could look to and remember and real, you know, come back to God and then have reconciliation with him, reconciliation with each other. And he puts that tabernacle right in the middle of the camp so everybody remembers that he's supposed to be the middle of everything, right? The focus that John talked about last week. And then they wander through the wilderness for 40 years because... The people are a grumpy, complaining, what have you done for me lately, God kind of people. Nothing like us, right? We never, ever do that. In fact, we're actually so much like when we read the Older Testament, the Israelites, we're, we're them. We're them. And so often we do the thing of, when things are going well, I'm really proud of me, right? When things are going bad, then I'm complaining and grumpy and how could this happen to me? Right, that's what we do. And that's what we see in the story of the Israelites over and over and over again. And the beauty is that God never gives up on them. He keeps staying right there in the center. He keeps calling them back. And so this whole big, amazing, beautiful story. Moses, right? Oh, awesome. And right in the middle of this passage in Hebrews, the author gives us another little nugget. The author references a verse from Numbers 12. The author does something that we call a remez. And a remez is another hermeneutical tool. It's when the author uh, quotes something from the Older Testament with the purpose of the concept, the idea of you have to go back and read the context to understand what I'm saying. Right? You have to know the story. It's really hard for us because we're not, we don't like have the scriptures memorized and all this kind of stuff. But in the culture of the day, they did. They had huge chunks of the scripture memorized. And that was the expectation. I can say this and boom, you know, oh gosh, that was back in da 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 right? And sometimes they would leave a part out. And that was the actual message. Like John the Baptist is kind of the famous one. After all the stuff, Jesus' cousin baptizes Jesus, Holy Spirit, right? And then he's in prison and he says, hey, are you really the Messiah? Not because John was confused, but he was asking, hey, are you going to get me out of prison because you're supposed to set all the captives free? And Jesus responds by quoting these passages about the Messiah, scripture about the Messiah, and leaves that part out to say, oh, John, sorry, you're not getting out of this one, right? And it's this whole odd conversation, but that's the point. And so if we go back to Numbers chapter 
12, verses 1 through 9, real quick, and look at this. We're going to see a really amazing, beautiful picture that this author, inspired by God, is sharing with us. So it says, Then Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Then they said, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? Which is hilarious because that's actually what they're talking about about Moses and upset because God's not, like, why is Moses the only one that we're getting to hear? But they make up something about his wives, right? That's the thing which, I don't know if you're ever on social media, but that happens a lot. Um, And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man on the face of the earth, says the humble Moses. Uh, The Lord spoke immediately to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The three of you come to the tent of meetings. So the three of them went, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. He then called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. So they're complaining. Doesn't God speak to us too? Why isn't God speaking to us? He doesn't only speak through Moses. And he calls them to the tent. And I don't know about you. If you have you ever been called to the principal's office? Like, do you remember back in the day? Or called to the, the boss's office? So when I was in middle school, I was literally this naive, okay? So I say this to parents, like, remember this about our, your kids. It's not all, like, intentional and bad. But I was literally this naive. So one of my friends forgot his lunch money one day for school, and we were talking about, oh, man, how are you going to get this, da, da, whatever. And he lived, like, right over there. I mean, it was, like, less than a mile right over there. And we're like, you know, Miss Camacho's really cool. We're all on the same. Let's just go during Miss Camacho's class run over to your house, get your lunch money, come back. It'll be fine. She's cool. Nothing will happen. Okay, great. So we go, the bell rings, and we're like, you know, and we run across the street and looking both ways off, you know, because we're so brave, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, whatever, going over to uh, our friend's house. Now, the funniest part is we run across the street and we go, oh my gosh, there was a cliff right there we didn't know about. So we like almost went over the cliff and came back around. So we go to our friend's house, get his lunch money, this whole crazy story happens. Come back. Go to our next class. All right, yeah. Friends got lunch money. See you guys at lunch. Da, 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 whatever. And then I'm sitting there in class, and I get the, on the speaker. Um, could you please send Jason Carlottini to the principal's office? You know, kind of deal. And I go, and I have to. Now, I was familiar with the principal. I've got to be honest about that in middle school. Uh, we, were, we were close friends. Um, that was back in the day where your parents had to sign a sheet to say that you could get spankings, you know, at the principal's office. And my dad, when I gave it to him, signed it laughing, <laughs> right? So um, I was very familiar with the principal. Um, but I get there and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. What's going to, I've never done anything like this. I mean, this is like, I mean, this isn't talking in classes. And I'm standing there and the principal comes out, come in, Jason. And I'm like, all right, so this is what's going on. This is God, Aaron, and Miriam. And I can't, I mean, like, as scared as I was as a middle schooler, I can't, fa- can you imagine? God says, come on, let's have a conversation, right? I mean, pretty big deal. And so he then says to them, Lord said, hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. My servant Moses, though, is not like this. He is faithful in all my house. That's the part that they 
quote in Hebrews, with him I will speak face to face, openly and not in riddles. And he will see the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. (laughs) Right? I mean, oh man. I mean, just be a fly on the wall. I don't want to be them, but a fly on the wall and that deal, right? And here's the deal. So So God... All these things that the people of, that the Hebrews think about, the Jews think about Moses, and God, the author, is pointing back to where God says the same thing. Yeah, Moses isn't like all the rest of them. He's not like the other prophets that are going to come. He's something special to me. We meet face to face, have real conversations. He sees my form in some way, whatever that means, right? Unbelievable. So God's like, Moses is my boy, right? Depending on your generation. He's my dog. He's my homie. He's my bro or bra or whatever is the right way to say it, right? And then according to my, my boys, he's my slime, which sounds so weird to say out loud. But anyway, that's the thing today, I guess. Uh, but that's who Moses is. Moses is awesome. He's great. I mean, oh, uh, right? It's Moses. And you know the sad thing is this is Moses' reward. This is brother and sister, right? Not the rest of the people that are grumbling all the time. It's brother and sister that he gets to lead. But you know what God is saying is the reward isn't the blessing, the reward that we call it. The reward is he got to, for 40 years, meet face to face with God. Sometimes we've got to redirect and go, man, the blessing is actually not getting out of this thing or this thing being better. It's going through it with the Lord, right? Oh, and so that's Moses. The whole rest of the story is built upon this. It's, oh, so good. I mean, that deserves like a bam, what? You know, kind of deal. Oh, it's so good. And if you've got younger kids, you know what that means. And if not, whatever. We'll figure it out, right? Uh, but it's so good, and I love it. And so then this is the argument that the author is making. But Jesus is better than Moses. So here's a few things. There's actually like nine of them. We're just going to pound through them real quick. Ways that Jesus is better than Moses that come out of here. Jesus is the designer of the house that Moses built. Moses built the house. Jesus designed it. And it says in there that the, the builder is better than the, the thing itself, right? We've got a lot of architects, build, home builders, um, designers, all those kind of people in our community. You know them. You know some of them. And so to say that Moses was better than Jesus, was better than God, would be saying that, like, the designer, the home builder, is only as good as the home that they built. Like, that's the sum total of their identity. But the design, the home, is just a creative uh, reflection of that builder, of that designer. And so Moses, Jesus is better because God's actually the one that gave him the picture, gave him the design, gave him the instructions for him to then build out. Jesus um, is better because Jesus is who Moses was serving in the tabernacle, right? I mean, like, Most simply, it says he was a servant, you know, he was a faithful servant in the house. 
Jesus was the one that he was serving. So how could Moses be better, right? And this is kind of like dealing with, for us today, this whole issue that we kind of get stuck in of, if I just follow the way, the, the rules, the religious kind of expectation, then, I, then it's okay. That's better. That's good enough, right? And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's something, to, Jesus is better than all of that. All of that. Moses was faithful, and we don't want to take anything away from Moses. There's actually not a single thing in this passage in Hebrews that takes a thing, tears down Moses to make this point. It's unbelievable. It's just like in a home, if you have a home built, the contractor that you bring in could be awesome, do a great, best tile work ever, right? But the builder of the whole thing is still going to get a little more praise than that person, than that specific part doesn't make it bad. It's still good. He's faithful to do his part. His part is beautiful. Uh, Moses was the most faithful of the people of God, but Jesus is the one who called God's people into being, right? Oh, Moses might have been faithful, but if it wasn't for Jesus, there wouldn't be a people to be faithful, right? Moses' exodus leads his people to freedom from an oppressive ruler, to be a set apart. That's what holy means, set apart nation. But Jesus' exodus sets all souls free from the fear of death to live freely liberated with the identity God gives us. Oh, what Jesus did was so different, so much better. That's a, the first exodus is a picture, but this is the true reality. And what Jesus is doing, is actually a great lens to view Jesus in, is that he's coming and having a second exodus. And the exodus is, hey, once you were liberated from those oppressors, but now I'm going to liberate your soul from all oppression. Oh, right? That's good. That's good. And Jesus does it how? Therefore, by suffering, right? All we have to do is just receive, to say thank you, Thank you for doing all of it. And the thing I loved of this whole situation that the author inspired by God is laying out is that that none of this is tearing down Moses. Moses was great. He was faithful. So let me just share because of the world that we live in. If you have to tear someone else down to make your point, then it's probably because your point wasn't valid in the first place. If your point is really valid, then just make your point. Don't we all just really want a fair conversation, a fair fight? I remember at one point when I was in college, I was in this one class and the professor came in and, uh, well, he, for this class he said, hey, next class we're going to talk about evolution. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. He seemed like a good professor. I thought, okay, well, maybe we're going to have a fair, you know, good conversation. The next class comes, he gets in and throws down all this stuff, opens stuff up, and he's that, like worked up. He goes, remember I said we're going to talk about evolution today? So let me show you how Christianity and creationism can't be true. Da, da, da. And he just goes, and I'm like, wait, hold on. Can we have a fair conversation? Like, can we just, like, why don't we, why don't we talk about evolution and like, have a conversation? And it was this wild, whole crazy scene that, that happened that was unbelievable. And uh, finally, some, one girl said something, and he got mad, slammed his book, left, classes over, you know, whole like, it was like out of a movie. I mean, it was, it was wild. But 
have fair conversations. If your point, if our Jesus is so much better that he's worth believing in, he's worth following, you don't have to tear someone else's or someone else's things down. We just have to share, hey, let me show you Jesus. He's always going to be better. Let me show you Jesus. Moses instituted a system to help us remember and return to God, but Jesus instituted a way for us to never be separated from God. Oh, that's so good, right? God was in the middle of the camp, so they'd never forget. They wouldn't get distracted. But Jesus does something different. He doesn't want us to ever be separated from him. Moses builds a physical structure for God's house, but Jesus creates a home in each side of us, inside of each of us, right? He's with us. He's for us. Moses was faithful to serve in God's house, but Jesus was faithful to suffer for God's house. Moses pleaded for God's people to be saved, but Jesus gave his life so they could be saved. Jesus is better because he didn't withhold a single thing from me or you. He stepped out of heaven and he went to the cross and he suffered all of it by choice because he doesn't want to be separated from you. He wants you. Moses led his, uh, a nation to follow God, but Jesus adopts sons and daughters to live with daddy. That's what Jesus is doing. John says we're not trying to be better people, but we're, we're coming to life, going from death to life. And Jesus literally brings us to life and says, hey, don't live here. Let me take you to a home where you can live and have security. I love that the author uses this whole idea of home and house because at the end of the day, isn't that what, part of what we're all looking for? is a home to belong to, a family to be a part of. And Jesus is better because he makes a way through his own suffering for us to be a part of God's house, a part of God's family. So three real quick things just to think about as we kind of uh, close up and wrap up and reflect. And David's going to come back up in just a minute. We're going to have a, a little bit of worship and, and just reflection time. But one of the natural questions that comes out of here is, hey, what house are you building? What house are you building? Are you building your own house to have great pride in? Is your life building you up? Are you building a system of being good and religious principles for people to be good and be better? Or are we building a house which Jesus lives in us so that people can actually meet Jesus and walk in a never-ending, ongoing, intimate relationship with the creator of everything? There's times that I've got to sit back and really ask those questions, that question very sincerely, heartfelt, I mean, and wrestle with Am I doing this because it makes me look good? Am I doing this because it makes that ministry a little bit better? Or am I doing this because it'll help people meet Jesus and grow in the relationship with Jesus? Are you being a faithful servant or a faithful son and daughter? And this one's actually really simple. 
There's nothing wrong with being a faithful servant. It's just not your identity. That's not who you are called to be. You are called to be a faithful son, a faithful daughter. Are you walking in an intimate relationship with God, not just doing God's things? Because if you do, that will actually lead you as a child to be faithful. A servant's faithfulness always is to get something. A child's faithfulness is because that's who they are. One of the things that I found this last week that I thought was fascinating is if we don't engage in faithfulness, then we default to fear. And I don't know about you, but I see that all over the place. We're being faithful with who God says he is and who he says we are, wherever he asks us to go. And then finally, are we tearing down others to be better? Or are we building them up like the better one? Again, we don't have to tear down anyone. We can just present, this is our Jesus. Our world lives in a world of verses, of this or that, right? From the simple ones to Mac versus PC, Apple and Android, UT, A&M, right? Spurs and Lakers, Polit- oh, right, we don't necessarily want to go there with all, I mean, I don't know if anybody's seen any of those things lately. But what if there was a people that instead said, hmm, instead of this or that, instead says, let me come in and show you, I believe that this is good and this is better. Oh, that's great. That's what you believe. That's, that's absolutely fine. This is why I think this is better. And we just stopped there as opposed to digging into the tearing apart, right? Man, that could be huge right now, especially.